You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Second Samuel chapter 7 is where we will be this morning. We've been walking chapter by chapter here at Redemption Church through 1 Samuel and now in 2 Samuel. And the chapter before us on this day is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, we love to delight in surprising those whom we love, don't we? There's a reason we throw surprise parties. There was a surprise party here just Thursday night, right? We love surprising people with good news, catching them off guard, whether it's a surprise party, maybe a surprise engagement proposal, maybe a surprise pregnancy announcement. We love to astound those we love with unexpected good news. And maybe you've been the grateful victim of a loved one's surprise, I remember the day just a few years ago, I completed my dissertation defense right at the start of the pandemic. Everything shut down, and I went to the church office to hop on the Zoom call for my dissertation defense, and which was a little depressing because I was supposed to be in person, and I'm sitting there in an office looking at a computer screen, and I completed the defense. I was approved for graduation, and I got home to a wonderful surprise conspired by my wife. My parents had driven up to celebrate for the weekend without me knowing about it. But I think the climax of the surprise was a Redemption Church parade of cars going down the street offering congratulations. Many of you were a part of that celebration. And the surprise of seeing the faces of saints after weeks of preaching to a tripod on those Sunday mornings brought incredible, unspeakable joy. And the surprise amplified the joy. That's the way it works, isn't it? Surprise amplifies, it expands the joy of the good news. Similarly, we will see today in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord surprised David with incredible news of an unimaginable promise. The, the Lord's surprise to David will cause him to overflow in joyous prayer and gladness and worship at the end of the chapter, But the Lord's surprise promise to David is going to fill him with with all sorts of emotions because as we look at the Bible and as we study the Bible, the Bible is the written record of God's promises made and fulfilled. And we ought to never cease being surprised by them because every promise of God given to us in his word is an act of surprising grace. The Lord is not obliged in any way to lavish you or me with his grace. He's not required to bind himself in promise to his people. But yet, over and over again, the Lord loves to delight his people with surprising promises. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord gives David a surprise promise which is one of the most significant promises in all of Scripture. Now, it is a promise to David, not you and me. But as we will see, it has massive implications for us. Massive. This passage before us is often called the Davidic Covenant. Davidic covenant, because it is here that the Lord binds himself by promising to build David's house forever. So throughout the Old Testament, the Lord makes several covenantal promises. Each covenant God gives to his people plays a clarifying role as the Lord gets increasingly specific in how he will redeem humanity from sin. So God's covenant with Abraham identified that it would be Abraham's seed from the one born of woman. Abraham's seed will be the one who will crush the head of the serpent. The promise, the covenant blessing, the salvation comes through Abraham's lineage. At Sinai, God covenants with Abraham's children, particularly the children that comes through Isaac and and Jacob. And and, and today, and and we see God makes that covenant with all of Abraham's people as his children. But today we're going to see that promise get even more specific as 
God promises to redeem through the lineage of David's house. It is through David's offspring that messianic hope will emerge. And it's impossible, I think, to overstate just how important this chapter is in the Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you want to understand God's purposes of redemption, this is one of the key milestone chapters that you need to be familiar with. Because the promises God made to David in 2 Samuel 7 reverberate throughout the remainder of the Old Testament. You can't understand the book of Isaiah and the other prophets without them. You can't understand the book of Psalms without them. But this promise won't find its consummation. It won't find its yes. It won't find its fulfillment until a little baby's born in Bethlehem. It won't find its consummation until Jesus. So because of the significance of this chapter for the Old Testament and the New Testament, we want to attend to it with diligence. In other words, we want to, we want to pay attention because we want to get a glimpse of God's surprising and marvelous promise. So let's begin by looking at verse 1 of chapter 7. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, the setting in verse 1 indicates that a rather considerable amount of time has passed since chapter 6. We've most likely jumped ahead several years in David's reign. As we've seen in Samuel, the narrator of Samuel isn't always feels, doesn't feel to be constricted by chronology, but he will sometimes arrange events by theme rather than by date. So the events of 2 Samuel 7 most likely happened after the events of 2 Samuel 8, where David defeats and subdues the Philistines once and for all. But the Davidic covenant is brought earlier in this time of peace because it thematically connects with David bringing the ark into Jerusalem in chapter 6. So what prompts God's surprise promise is David's growing desire to see a house built for the Lord. The land of Israel is at peace. David has entered now into a time of Sabbath as the Lord has given him rest. But as we've traced throughout David's biography, David's had little time for rest, hasn't he? There hasn't been any time for rest and refreshment. He's been thrust into the spotlight ever since his battle with Goliath. He had to serve as Saul's soothing musician who was troubled. He was the leading famed general of Israel. He had to run from his life from Saul as he murderously hunted him down. He had to establish his kingdom after Saul's death and unite the, the tribes together under his rule. He had to build the infrastructure of a new Israel and the Philistine menace that were agitated by it. So he's been busy, hasn't he? And now David is at rest. He's at rest. The Lord has brought him into a season of restful peace. The kingdom is united. It is stable. It is flourishing. The enemies are at their heels. And with the margin of time, David begins to share an idea, brewing in his heart with his prophetic advisor named Nathan. Now, who is Nathan? This is our first introduction to Nathan in 1 Samuel excuse me, in 2 Samuel. And so this is the first time we see him. And he's introduced as a prophet. Now you might remember, as we studied this book, the king needed a prophet to come alongside him to be the mouthpiece of God for his rule. So the prophet was there to give the king instruction and guidance. Samuel was to be that prophet for Saul, but Saul didn't listen to Samuel. He rejected God's word. And so thus the Lord took Samuel from Saul. Divine counsel is no longer offered to him. But with David, we've seen time and time again, he has been a king who loves God's word, who depends on God's word, who relies on the prophetic word of God. And so we've seen that over and over and again. First Samuel 22, as David's in the wilderness, we see that David has the prophet of God with him. He's got the prophet Gad in the wilderness, counseling him and advising him. And Nathan will be another prophet that is in David's ear for the remainder of David's life. We have seen repeatedly, David is the king who depends on God's word. 
And so David, in this time of peace, in this time of rest, you almost get the feeling that he and Nathan are just hanging out, looking over the city, right? And he says, David, David, I'm going to run an idea by you, Nathan, to get your feedback. David says, my, my house is a house of cedar. It is complete. My home is a beautiful dwelling in this renovated city that I've been able to achieve. I've got this beautiful cedar home made up of some of the best materials designed by the best architects in the world. And it bothers David, doesn't it? It bothers David that he is dwelling in such a nice, wonderful, luxurious place while the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. And so as David looks at his living quarters, it doesn't seem right that the Lord is simply camping in the backyard of his palace. Something off about that in his mind. David's extravagant abode, contrasted with the Lord's humble dwelling, agitates his thoughts. And so he shares with Nathan something he would like to do. He wants to build the Lord a house. Now, David's concern seems reasonable to Nathan. Seems like a pretty decent idea. Nathan discerns that David wants to honor the Lord. He wants to glorify the Lord. He wants to exalt the Lord even above himself, have a good home for the Ark of the Covenant to dwell in. All sounds like a good idea. So Nathan says, go, do all that is in the heart. The Lord is with you. Now, in this council, Nathan's not giving a direct word from the Lord. He's simply giving his own counsel, his own feedback. So to Nathan, building, building God a nice temple, that seems like a wonderful thing to do, David. Go do what's in your heart. But revelation overrides what we reckon is reasonable. And as we've seen, even most recently with the death of Uzzah, the Lord doesn't mind interrupting David's good plans to remind him of the fullness of his character. And so as the king and the prophet go home that evening after their evening chat, Nathan receives a direct word from the Lord. And to David and Nathan's surprise, the Lord says David is not to build the house for the Lord. The Lord's response to David here is the longest speech of the Lord in the Old Testament since Sinai. It's the first time since 1 Samuel chapter 3 that the Lord has spoken in any considerable length in the text. At Sinai, the Lord spoke extensively to Moses and giving the promised covenant for the nation of Israel. But here, the Lord speaks extensively to establish a covenant with his servant, David. And in God's speech in 1 Samuel 3, the last time we really heard the Lord give a lengthy speech in the text, he reveals his plan to destroy Eli's house. But now in this speech, God will reveal his plans to build David a house forever. Let's begin reading in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? You know, we can almost hear, can't we? A tone of correction in the Lord's voice as he rejects David's request. We can almost hear in the initial sentence, the initial question, would you build me a house to dwell in? As the Lord denies David's request, he's reminding David, David, I've been a God on the move ever since I delivered my people out of Egypt. After all, the, the Lord redeemed Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. He brought them through the waters of the Red Sea. He brought them to Mount Sinai, and the Lord gave his law to his people there, and they were joined together in a covenant. And in that law, if you read Exodus, you know that the Lord established a building of a tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant then would signify God's presence and power as he dwells within his people, with, with his people. And when not being transported, the Ark of the Covenant was to reside in the tent of the tabernacle. And even after Joshua conquered the land and the Ark of the Covenant still remained in a tent, the tent allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be mobile. It could go where it needed to go for God to move among his people. 
as part of the, the wisdom of its design. And so as the Lord reminds David of his housing arrangements since Egypt, he stresses to David, nice thought, bud, but have I ever asked for a change of living circumstances? Have I ever asked anyone to build me a house? I've been perfectly content, David, with my, my housing situation. Lord said, I never once asked any of the judges. I asked Gideon to come and build me a house. No, I never asked anybody to build me a temple or a house of cedar. The Lord stresses here in the text, doesn't he? that he doesn't have a house, he never asked for a house, and he doesn't need a house. So David, why are you even suggesting this? The surprising blessing will come after the Lord's soft rebuke (laughs) at David's request. But the Lord's correction, I think, does provide some very important lessons for us that we need to remember and that we would be wise to learn. For one, the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle system were divine accommodations to give Israel physical aids to understand his holiness, his transcendence, and his presence. Put simply, God isn't confined to an ark, (laughs) nor can he dwell in a house, can he? The Psalms say that the heavens is his throne, the earth is his footstool. Stephen, the martyr, remember when he was preaching right before he got stoned to death? He said, the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As Paul preached to the Athenian philosophers, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Similarly, the Lord here reminds David of his self-sufficiency. As we learn from Paul, the law was a guardian until the Christ came. The authority of Hebrews calls the temple and all of its system a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. And now in the coming of Jesus, the the, the coming substance has arrived. Jesus is the presence of God among men in a way that the Ark of Covenant could never be. Jesus was God in flesh. He's eternal son of God who has tabernacled among us. Read John chapter 1. So the tabernacle and the future temple that Solomon would build, the Lord kind of reminds David here, they're all just sort of placeholders, all placeholders until Jesus comes. This this is why Jesus would prophesy about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. With his death and with his resurrection, he makes the need for the temple obsolete. And it's one of the sad realities, isn't it? That many of the Jewish people still long and labor for a temple to be rebuilt for the Lord? If you make it to Israel one day, you can see, walking through Jerusalem, some of the instruments and furniture that they have already made for a what they hope will be a rebuilt temple. All the furniture's there, ready to move in. We just got to build the temple. They're still longing and waiting for it, and you only wish they could hear with gracious ears, opened by the Holy Spirit, the Lord's rebuke of David. Would you build me a house to dwell in? The Lord's already come. The Messiah has arrived. The better temple has arrived, and his name is Jesus. As we will see, the Lord is going to permit a temple to be built, but it will be done by David's son. David is not to do it. The reason given in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 3, states that David was not allowed to do it because he was, quote, a man of war. That point isn't stressed as much here in 2 Samuel 7. Instead, the focus becomes how the Lord will build a house for David before anyone considers building a house for him. In the ancient world, it was common for kings to build temples to their gods. And why would they do that? Well, to earn the favor of the gods. I build this extravagant temple, then the Lord will bless my kingdom. But David was to be a king unlike the pagan gods of the nations. And the Lord doesn't want the nations to be confused. God's blessing comes by his grace, not through human effort. So the Lord will bless David, and he will build David a house without David building him a temple. David's got to get the order right. It's grace that precedes our working. And so the Lord will flip the script on David 
Much to David's surprise, he's not expecting it. Instead of David building a house for God, God says, David, guess what? I'm building a house for you. Let's keep reading these words in verse eight. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel uh, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. As God's word continues, David grew increasingly amazed and bewildered at God's unexpected promises. The Lord began with some bad news. David, I don't need you to build me a house. But then the Lord begins to share with David the good news. It escalates. It intensifies as the Lord reveals it. David, I'm building you a house. And as the Lord defines what that means, it becomes increasingly breathtaking. He begins by reminding David of his humble origins, doesn't he? David was but a shepherd boy working in the pastures of Bethlehem. But the Lord has taken David, this shepherd boy, and made him prince over all Israel. What a remarkable rise. But lest David get too puffed up, thinking he's accomplished the greatness, the Lord reminded David that he was the one who lifted David out of that field. He was the one who put David in the palace. The Lord stressed, look at the language, I took you, David. And David's incredible victories and successes in battle, where do they come from? I have been with you, the Lord said. So here we see the Lord lovingly and yet boldly remind David, and it's a reminder that we need all the time, right? That, that he is the source of blessing and victory, not us. The Lord's word to David reminds us that there's no room at all for arrogance in the Christian life, is there? Any blessings in our life, any achievements we accomplished, any victory that we've enjoyed, all of it comes from God's gracious and sovereign hand. David was a nobody. He was just a shepherd boy. But yet the Lord chose him and blessed him and elevated him to his position as king. And isn't that God's method of operation, if you will? To choose what is weak in the world to shame the strong? The Lord's blessing of David parallels how the Lord blesses his people in Christ. The Lord doesn't save any of us because we're mighty, because we're strong, because we're smart, or because we're well-regarded, or because of where we live. He doesn't save us because we are deserving. In fact, it's just the opposite, isn't it? He saves us while we're lowly, vile sinners with a rebellious hatred for God and his ways. And yet the Lord in his grace redeems us through Jesus out of the shame of our condemnation of sin. And through faith in the Lord Jesus, the Lord lifts us up out of the miry bog of our sin and sets us firmly on the rock. And, and as we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, as we stand before God, we're no longer condemned. What wonderful news that is. But there's more, right? The gospel promises ensure not only our justification, but our royal status as God's children. He pours out every spiritual blessing upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not only redeemed out of the pit of our condemnation, but we're elevated in status because of our union with the king, with Jesus. And so as God's royal children, we get to share in the imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance kept in heaven for us. So who are we then? Who are we that the Lord might regard us? Who are we that God might adopt us as his children? Who are we that we might join in the royal family of King Jesus? What a change of status God has given his adopted children. And if you're in Christ, that status is one you share by his grace. And David knew and he rejoiced in the Lord's working of his life in the past. But notice how the verbs change in verse nine. Look at your Bibles. 
the tent shifts. So far, the Lord has only reminded at this point, David, of what the Lord had done. But now in verse nine, it shifts to what the Lord will do. Here the Lord is beginning to open up the curtain of his providential and mysterious purposes and plans. He's drawing them back and he's getting ready to share with David, here's my plan, here's what I'm getting ready to do. The blessings that David had begun to enjoy is just the beginning. The Lord will make David's name great. But as we've seen repeatedly in the book of Samuel, God's blessing of David means the blessing of his people. The Lord tells David in verse 10 that he intends, look at what he says, to appoint a place for his people and to plant them, is the verb, to plant them in the land. Unlike the time of the judges when violence rose up time and time again from the nations to terrorize them, there was instability, there was constant political shakeup. Through David's reign, through the Lord making David's name great, he will give his people security and stability in the land. He tells David that through the monarchy, through his chosen king, he will cause Israel to dwell securely in the promised land in a way that they had not experienced since they first entered in. The Lord will give David rest, the text says, from all his enemies. And the Lord describes this purpose to David to get a better insight to why the Lord does not want David to build him a house, at least not yet. The Lord refuses to settle in to a house while the house of Israel is unsettled. The Lord will see to it first that Israel is stable and flourishing in the land of promise before the Lord even considers going into a permanent home. And the Lord has promised to bring Israel into that rest. And how is he going to do it? by making David's name great. Through his chosen king, the Lord will cause his people to be disturbed no more. The Lord will see to it that his people are at rest before he might ever consider resting in a home himself. The Lord will be a God on the move, contented with his tent until his people dwell securely. It's Mother's Day, and I'm a pastor. So I believe I'm contractually obligated to use motherhood as an illustration. (laughs) So as we think of God's promises and purposes here, his love for his people, I think, are similar to the sort of motherly action we see on a Thanksgiving holiday. Mom labors for weeks, getting the home ready for all the children and the grandchildren to come home. She slaves in the kitchen. She's creating a finely planned schedule and cooking orders to get the dishes rotated out of the oven in the right way. And as everyone arrives, mom is frantically busy. She greets them, yes, but there are things to be done. She wants to ensure everyone is welcome. Everyone is at ease. Everyone settles into the festivities that her children don't start fighting like they're old ways, right? She she settles into all that. And it's not until when? It's not until after the delicious meal with everyone ministered to and the dishes tucked away neatly and cleanly, that mom finally sits down to rest with the family she's worked so hard to put at rest. The Lord promises to do very similarly with Israel. The Lord will not rest in the temple. He will keep being on the move in the tent until he firmly plants Israel so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And so David has confused the order of operations. The Lord doesn't need David to build him a home. Before that option is even considered, the Lord must first build David's house. And as the veil of God's glorious and redemptive purposes begin to unfold before David, these are precious promises that the Lord gives him. Because as we'll see, the Lord's building of David's house will go beyond his own lifetime. The house the Lord is building is not just the present monarchy of David's lifetime, but the Lord will give him a forever reign through his lineage, through his children. The Lord here promises not just a monarchy, but a dynasty. And not just a dynasty, but one that will never end. The Lord opens up to David about his eternal purposes and what he has in store. And these covenantal promises, if you read them as we're about to do, are breathtaking in their scope. Let's look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, 
I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. The covenant, like all of God's covenants, are ones of grace. David is not an active participant in any of this, is he? He is but the passive beneficiary of God's gracious covenantal promises. And as we marvel at the promises God has made with David here, I want to draw our attention to four observations from this section. First, the promise that God makes here will not end at David's death. It will not end at David's death. So far, as David's listening to Nathan tell him, give him God's word, David, I'm sure, is very pleased. Right? This sounds great. I had to be at rest through my reign But then, as the promises unfurl, the prior promise is that David's name will not just be great and end once his body is in the grave, but the Lord will use David's reign to root his people in the land, and God will continue to bless his people through his lineage. And the Lord's purposeful sovereignty, he has planned to accomplish in David's life beyond what David could know or see. But here the Lord gives him a bit of a glimpse a small glimpse of what's to come. Second, the promise will continue through David's offspring. It won't end at his death, but it will continue through his offspring. The fulfillment of God's word to David will come through his lineage. Now, the closest proximate fulfillment here is Solomon, the next to inherit the throne. Unlike Saul's kingdom, David's kingdom will last long enough to see a succession to a new king. And David won't be the one to build the ark. I mean, build the temple. All right, Solomon will build a house for the ark. So look at my name, right? My name was used as a reference in the ark in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 2 in the prior chapter. The ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. It's another subtle reminder here that the infinite God cannot indwell a house, just his name. But based on this covenant, David spent years of accumulating the materials and drafting the plans for Solomon to be able to build the Lord's temple. Go read 1 Chronicles. But it's Solomon, though, who has the closest fulfillment to these promises. But the covenantal promise will continue through Solomon, yes, but the promise goes beyond Solomon. Look at verse 13. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. The Davidic dynasty will continue forever to Solomon and beyond. Verse 14 is significant indeed. Indeed, perhaps we dare say it is the most significant verse in all of First and Second Samuel. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now we have to exercise some restraint here before we quickly use this verse as a proof text for the Trinity. This is not a verse that begins to describe the eternal relationships between the Father and the Son as taught explicitly in the New Testament. However, it does provide a hint to what's to come and finds its fulfillment in the eternal Son of God. So what's going on here in verse 14? Well, the Lord is announcing the adoption of the Davidic monarch as his son. Calling David's heir a son is rather startling language considering that such language has thus far in the canon been reserved for the corporate nation of Israel entirely. So the relationship between God and his people Israel is frequently described as a father-son relationship. So when Moses first announced God's message to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4, the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. Or similarly, the Lord will remind Israel in Deuteronomy 14, you are the sons of the Lord your God. 
But here now we see this title of sonship is specified to an individual, namely the Davidic king. In the Davidic covenant, we see that all of the covenants God has made with his people begin to narrow with specificity upon David's line. But the Lord's promised Abraham to make his name great. And here, the Lord promises David to make his name great. God called Israel out of slavery to love him and to serve him as a son. And now it is through the Davidic line, the Davidic king, that God claims as his son. So the promises that God made to Abraham and the promises that God made to Israel narrow in specificity to the Davidic king. It is through David's line that God's covenant with Abraham and with Israel will find its consummation. And here we are beginning to understand the significance of the elders at Hebron, a few chapters earlier, calling David bone and flesh. It is the bond of union with God's king that unleashes the blessing for God's people. The promise of the covenant is fulfilled as they are now specified to David's lineage. The future of God's people is now connected to God's king. And the Lord, in his abounding grace for his people, will treat David's son as his own. David's forever kingdom will endure as God promises to treat David's descendants as his own son. That leads, third observation here to these promises, is that this promise will not be destroyed by sin. They will not be destroyed by sin. All the blessings of these covenantal promises sound wonderful. But we read about Saul, and we saw what happened to him and his sin. Everything collapsed in on itself. But what will happen if one of David's sons rebels in sin? Will the Lord cut off David's house? Will he cut off his promise? Is the promise contingent on his son's obedience? Will David's house be a repeat of Saul's? And the Lord promises, he promises that his will will not be thwarted by David's sinful sons. Like the father, like a father, the Lord will correct David's wayward son by discipline. The Lord will bring his chastisement. He will show steadfast love to David's offspring. And in due time, we're going to see the Lord keep true to that word, even with David himself. But yet, the Lord's word comes true. He will not cut off David's house. As we make our way to the end of 2 Samuel, we're going to see that David will make just as big of a mess of things as Saul ever did. David sinned just like Saul. But why? Was David not cut off like Saul's house? The answer is simple. It's God's extravagant, undeserved, and sovereign grace. David is no more deserving than these promises than Saul is. But with David's house, the Lord chooses to preserve David's dynasty in spite of their sinfulness. Human sin will not undo what God has promised in the world that he would do namely bringing salvation to his people. And praise God, his covenantal promises aren't conditioned by your human achievement or by mine. David's house, even when they will stumble in egregious, horrific sin, it will be a house made sure forever, the text says. And that leads forth, fourth observation. The promise will not fade over time. It will not fade over time. Look at verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David's kingdom will forever stand. So with a completed Bible in our laps, we can understand the substance of what David heard here in the shadows. Over the course of First and Second Kings, we read how the Lord is good to his word. He preserves David's house, even amidst their sin. But there is a crisis that comes in the Old Testament when Judah and the Davidic king are deported out of the land and shoveled off as exiles into Babylon. Go read Psalm 89 this afternoon to get a glimpse of just how confusing and devastating this was to God's people, particularly in light of 2 Samuel 7. Though David's lineage is preserved, the kingdom goes on pause for generations. 
And the latter prophets offer comfort to Israel and encouragement and hope that hang in there, the Davidic monarchy is coming. God's true to his word. And they begin to preach about a shoot that will sprout from the stump of Jesse. And as Israel laments the loss of my servant David, Isaiah tells us, hold on, the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh is coming. The, the Psalms anticipate, yearn, and point to the hope of a reinstated Davidic reign. And yet through all Israel's questions, all their wrestlings, all their longings, the Lord kept his covenantal promises. His word does not fail. And he fulfilled his promise to David in a way that no one in Israel expected, even though it was prophetically predicted. A son of David would be born in Bethlehem, who is Christ the Lord. And he would be David's son, yet David's Lord. The Lord Jesus would enjoy the status as God's son, not merely because he shares his lineage with David, but because he is the eternal son of God in flesh. God himself will come to be king of his people. And Jesus, the unexpected king, began to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom has arrived. The Davidic monarch has returned, and it has been given forever to Jesus. And because Jesus is the king who not only died, but who was raised from the dead, he has risen and ascended to his father's right hand. And because Jesus lives, his kingdom continues forever. It is here now. The Davidic covenant finds its fulfillment as the risen Christ sits presently on the throne. And David hears Nathan disclose to him God's precious promises. And he's overwhelmed. I mean, wouldn't you be? Overwhelmed and worship and prayer and thanksgiving and all. David leaves his cedar house and he goes to sit before the Lord in the tent. David is humbled in all. And he sits before the presence of the Lord and offers the Lord a prayer of gratitude. Let's read the remainder of the chapter, starting in verse 18, David's prayer. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God of Israel, over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. David's overwhelm is palpable as we hear the opening of his prayer. Indeed, he's overwhelmed by so much of God's marvelous, radical, generous grace. He says, who am I? David affirms God's assessment of his life. Every good thing that he's experienced has come by God's gracious and generous hand. The blessings overflow. And as David describes it, he says, bringing David into the kingdom here in Jerusalem, it's a small thing compared to what God has promised he will do. David recognizes that the good news here of promise for his house is not only good news for him, 
but it's good news for you. It's good news for you. It's good news for the world. In anticipated fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed by this revelation of the Davidic king. David says that this is instruction for mankind. Instruction for mankind. The Hebrew word here is Torah. This is a Torah for mankind. Torah refers to God's law, including his covenantal promises between Yahweh and Israel. But notice that as the covenant of grace narrows in specificity to David's line, the blessings of God's promised Davidic king means that the Torah promises given to Israel will expand to include all people. The announcement of God's favor upon David's kingdom is a Torah for the Gentiles. And so when the angels announced the birth of Jesus Christ, you remember what they said to the shepherds? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, not just Jews, all people. And so it will be. And so has it been with Christ coming. The Davidic covenant is not just good news for David. It's good news for the world. It's good news for you. The promised future of David's house leaves David speechless. We get a sense where he's so surprised, he's so caught off guard, he doesn't know what to say. And what more can be said to you? What more can I say, O Lord, to you? David marvels at the uniqueness of God. He describes how the Lord has disclosed his own heart to David. David worships the Lord for his greatness. There's no one like you, no God beside you. There's no competitors, no comparison, no rivals to the Lord. And then David marvels over the uniqueness of Israel particularly the privilege that they enjoy as God's chosen people. And so the Lord decided to make his name great through Israel. He redeemed them out of the land. Look at verse 24. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And so David then moves to express his faith in the promise. God's promises are meant to stir within you Belief, faith, trust. David employs the Lord. He says, Lord, confirm forever the word that you've spoken concerning my house. David prays God's word back to him. And just as David models for us, so would we be wise to do to pray God's word back to him. There's a powerful way to enrich your personal prayer life. What better way to be encouraged in your prayers than to pray the promises of God back to God? Promises that we know will come true because God makes them. You know, we often lament what seems from our vantage point as unanswered prayers, but by praying the Bible, with the Bible sitting on your lap and raising your voice to God, you can pray with confidence, knowing that every word of God proves true. With the Bible in your lap, you can pray prayers that you know God will answer. Praise God. And as David prays in faith, trusting in the promise of God, his ultimate desire is for God's name to be magnified forever. It is the talos of God's glory in all the earth that motivates David's praying and his working. And as we pray for God's blessing, that should be our prayer as well, that the whole earth would be filled with glory. But I want to impress upon you as I'm rapidly editing the last three pages of my sermon right now. (laughs) What I want to impress upon you is David's faith in the promise of God. God has made this revelation to his servant and encouraged David now prays in confidence. Look at verse 28. Look at that confidence that your words are true. Because David's confidence is in God's goodness, he has confidence in the promise. And then he humbly (laughs) offers his voice to the Lord, knowing that he will bless his house just as the Lord said he would do. For if the Lord will bless David's house, the house of the Lord, will, the house of David will be blessed forever. So even though this passage is about a promise made to David, I hope you've seen this as also a promise that is very good news for you this morning. God's promise to David means peace, stability, and rest that comes through Jesus's kingdom. Because Jesus is the king who has come and who will rule forever. 
Jesus is the king who has redeemed us out of our sin and settles us into the kingdom where his blessings overflow upon all his people. The Davidic covenant described here has been fulfilled in Jesus. The king has come and his kingdom will know no end. Therefore, become a citizen of Jesus' kingdom by turning from your sins and trusting by faith in the promises of God. Salvation has been been made available to, to all who would ask it, that anyone who would turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ can be forgiven and be made a citizen of this kingdom and enjoy the blessings of its king. You can rest this morning as God plants you forever in his forever kingdom. You can find rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, upon whom all the promises of God find their yes. I pray that you hear the good news of the gospel this morning and that you would be surprised by these joyous promises. If you're not a Christian this morning, I pray that you would find yourself, like David, experiencing this morning a whiplash of joy. Perhaps you came this morning expecting to do something for God, like David. I want to build God a house. I want to do something that would honor the Lord and and make him like me and make him appease him for my behavior. And only to find out this morning, God has done something for you. Perhaps you came hoping to please God by your attendance only to find out that God has already graciously and generously made available his salvation to you through his son. So may the grace of God surprise you this morning. May it startle you. May it overwhelm you like it did David as you come to Jesus, who is God's forever king. Church, our God is a word-binding, covenant-keeping, promise-fulfilling God. Who is like him? Who is like God's king? Let us therefore gather this morning in worship of the risen Christ who is our forever king. Let's pray to him. Lord Jesus, we ask that your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.